Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is medical device sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of yum yum sauce in times of wasabi mayo, an infernal concoction if there ever was one. Well, today we are not going to hold the mayo. In fact, we're going to throw you in the car and drive you to the front door, and you're going to get to have a conversation with Mayo Clinic legend, Dr. Bernie Mori. Hope you were all having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did, and I'm having a much better week having spoken with Dr. Mori. Want a quick rundown of just who it is you're getting to hear from today? Let's start at high school. Nolan High School, Fort Worth, Texas, Hall of Fame, senior medical school class president at the University of Texas. Fulbright scholar, NASA aerospace engineer, major in the Air Force, emeritus chair of orthopedics and member of the Board of Governors of the Mayo Clinic, past president of AAOS and of the American Orthopedic Association and the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons, and was the surgeon to senior president and Mrs. Bush. He has authored 15 major textbooks under four different titles, and has over 440 peer-reviewed publications. My printer literally wanted to tap out in the middle of printing this CV. Uh, It's just so voluminous, so many amazing things over his career. And you get to hear about it. You get to hear his life story and know his contribution, the shoulders that so many of us stand on in this business, Uh, really some amazing things. So we're going to dedicate this entire episode to this conversation. And the next one, this is a part one, part two. So join with me as we welcome to the show Dr. Bernie Mori. Well, thanks very much. It's very nice to have been invited. Dr. Mori, it is quite the honor to have the opportunity to speak with you as your impact on the orthopedic space has been substantial. I look forward to asking you about your role as surgeon for the President of the United States, the Coonrad Mori Elbow, your time at NASA. But first, let's go back to Texas. What put you on the road to medicine and ultimately a career in orthopedic reconstruction? Well, uh, it's, I guess in looking back, there were some things, but, um, as it was occurring, I was thinking it was a little bit serendipitous. Um, when I was in high school, I played a number of sports, um, including football. And, um, during that, um, time I uh, broke a couple of ribs and I also had an uncommon injury of a rotator cuff tear. So I was in the doctor's office a bit and, um, I was really impressed. I remember even as a high school kid, the um, expertise of the physician and how they knew what seemed to be going wrong and uh, and what to do about it. But then I uh, didn't think too much about it um, until um, I and when I uh, went to college, I, I got a degree in mathematics, but I uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do and um, ended up going to NASA as an aerospace engineer. And, um, and, and ironically, or maybe surprisingly, I don't know which, uh, I actually enrolled in law school and uh, was prepared to go to the University of Houston Law School that summer or the September after I graduated in 65. And um, I met a, a, a very attractive nursing student that um, was very uh, devoted to her studies and to taking care of patients. And uh, I was I was just impressed with her 
commitment to her profession. And uh, so I decided maybe how to try to be a doctor. I stepped back from uh, my uh, position in, in, in the law school and started studying for uh, uh, MCAT. Stayed on at NASA for two and a half years while I was uh, getting my sciences and uh, then uh, taking the MCAT and then getting accepted and then finally getting in took two and a half years altogether. So that's why I was at NASA for that period of time. Um, in the meantime, I ended up marrying the nurse, uh, and uh, that was 54 years ago. The, uh, we went to Galveston Medical School, and uh, we had our first child there and our second child my last year, senior year, and uh, finished medical school in Galveston. And then it was fortunate enough to have an internship and residency at Mayo. And here we had two more children. And um, I became interested in orthopedics um, right off the button because I like sports. I like mathematics. My dad's an engineer, and so I liked um, engineering concepts and um, design concepts. And so as I was going through medical school, my wife, Carla, actually said, I think you've got the instincts of an orthopedic surgeon. And um, this was really probably before I knew that, uh, but uh, she proved to be right. And uh we came to Mayo to do our internship and residency, as I mentioned. And while I was here, I was very fortunate in that I had an opportunity to get a master's degree in biomechanics and to uh, do a project in the biomechanics laboratory under Dr. Kion and Ed Chow. And uh, my medical advisor was Dr. Kelly. And so under their guidance, uh, I was able to do some basic investigation. And it happened to be on the elbow. And uh, three-dimensional motion of the elbow that um, was the basis for uh, conceptualizing a loose hinge linked but loose hinged uh, implant that uh, subsequently became part of the uh, Coonrad Mori implant. And that the origins of that was that uh, uh, master's degree project of uh, the three-dimensional motion of the elbow. Tell me about this research, uh, just incredible, where this would ultimately lead to. The advice that I had uh, with regard to research uh, was from Dr. Kelly, and he said, work in a vacuum. And I had enough clinical experience by then to know that nobody knew much about the elbow. So I thought, well, I've got an opportunity to learn something that maybe hasn't been described before. And I did a the uh, three-dimensional motion of the elbow was the master's project that helped me better understand the function or mechanisms of movement of the joint. And so um, the combination of working in a vacuum and then being able to define some of the aspects that had not really been recognized before regarding kinematics uh, kind of moved me in this direction of uh, focusing a little bit on the elbow in my career. And then uh, probably the, the textbook that uh, we wrote in 1983 was the big thing that uh, kind of locked me into to kind of staying with the elbow, but not exclusively. I did a lot of other things, as you know, but um, that's how I got started in my interest and uh, kind of why it was sustained. Comedian Rodney Dangerfield used to look in the camera and say, I get no respect. I get no respect at all. And I find it just amazing that a sizable portion of your career orbited around a part of the body that in some ways uh, has got no respect at all. It's been called the forgotten joint. Can you expand on that a little bit? I used to call it the joint um, that's beyond and between. 
It's beyond what people care about and is in between two joints that they do care about, hand and wrist and the shoulder. So um, it's kind of a wasteland that's uh, between and beyond. And um, the problem with the elbow, in my opinion, was that um, it is one of the most unpredictable joints uh, in the body. In, in most other uh, joints, if you have an injury or a fracture, even if it's an interarticular fracture, if you manage it properly, you can get a fairly predictable outcome. But with the elbow, it seemed that more often than not, you would ha- think that you had done something well or at least adequate, and then the elbow would be stiff or painful. Or you think that you didn't do something very well, and the elbow may not uh, may not have reacted so adversely, and patient may not have pain and better motion than you thought. So it's just a very unpredictable joint. And of course, it still is. And the, and the other thing about it is, if you look at just percentage of pathology, of all the joints that get involved with, say, fractures, elbow is near the bottom of the heap, you know, less than the hip, less than the knee, less than the ankle, less than the shoulder, hand and wrist. So it's only about two to five percent of all the fractures. So it's um, it's also less frequently involved in disease or trauma. So you, you don't have as much opportunity to learn about it. Your name is synonymous with the enormously successful Coonrad Mori elbow. I've been in so many of these cases. Simple instruments, great implant design. What inspired you to build it? And walk me through the project of an implant that's been basically the gold standard for over 40 years. It was 1978. And um, at that time, there were no elbows that were successful. Uh, there were some different design concepts floating around. There had not been very much science applied to the elbow, but it was very well recognized that there were successful hip and knee replacements and even shoulder replacements, uh, but not so much for the elbow. And it was that and I guess really, to be honest, the ankle were the kind of last two joints to be tamed, if you will. And um so uh, recognizing that, my research that b- provided some insight onto the motion of the elbow uh, prompted a simple design modification of relaxing the tolerances of the bushings and the pin so that the elbow would have some play. And the concept is to allow the muscles to uh, move the forearm or the humerus out of plane of, of the flexion axis would allow some of the forces to be dampened or absorbed by the uh, soft tissue envelope, and that would decrease stresses on the bone cement interface. Um, the, the second uh, design concept that really made the implant, I think, was the flange. And we did a, a number of uh, clinical studies where we were just studying the nature of the failure of artificial implants of, of all designs. And it was obvious that the um, there was a common pattern of the humeral component coming loose, and it always came loose by the articular surface being pushed posterior. That would drive the stem of the implant a little bit proximal and then out the front of the cortex anteriorly. So you, you look at that over and over and over again, and um, you recognize that if you could put, uh, if you could resist the posterior displacement forces, you could potentially lessen the likelihood of loosening. So the logical thing to do is to put an extra cortical buttress uh, to resist the posterior displacement. And so that was the anterior flange. Uh, A byproduct of that, which is proven to be extremely important, 
which I quite frankly did not think about, was that uh, today we're using it so much for fractures, that is the joint replacement. Um, but when you treat a fracture, it's supposed to remove all the fragments. And if you do that, there's no distal humerus. So uh, you're putting, a, uh, let's say, a pin into a cylinder. And so there's not much to resist torsion of the pin within the cylinder if you've got those designs. But if you were to put a, an outrigger on the pin and attach it to the surface of the cylinder, the resistance to torque goes up by a power of three of the radius. So that's a very, very powerful concept to resist torque. So the reason that I think this has been successful in so many applications is the anterior flange, which was a concept that we, you know, tried to, we studied in, in a lot of it's just geometry. Uh, and the uh, three-dimensional motion giving way to the loose hinge. And those two uh, concepts we uh, shared with Dr. Coonrad, who had an implant that was a rigidly fixed uh, device with no flange. And uh, he was very gracious and said, well, that makes sense. Why don't you go ahead and modify the implant that way? And so we took it to Zimmer, and Zimmer uh, agreed and with uh, Dr. Coonrad's blessing. And then the name was interesting because uh, I, I submitted this as the as the Coonrad Mayo Elbow or the Mayo Coonrad Elbow, whichever. And uh, Mayo refused to put their name on it. And so um, I said, we'll call it the Modified Coonrad. And uh, Zimmer uh, said, well, we'd prefer to put your name on it. And I was really reluctant to do that because it didn't seem appropriate. But uh, ultimately, they th said that it would be an important thing for them to be able to market it that way. So I uh, uh, relented. Uh, and that's how it became known as the Coonrad Mori. I was reading an article a few days ago about Dr. Coonrad and just amazing what he was able to accomplish at Duke and his footprint in so many aspects of orthopedics. Oh, yeah. And he was also a hand surgeon and a pediatrician. He did a pediatric spine surgery. This is going way back on the spine frontier, but I believe he had a stint uh, utilizing Harrington rods there at Duke. I didn't remember that he had an association with Harrington, but I remember he did scoliosis surgery. So um, I would not be surprised if there was not a, a connection or a relationship, working relationship between Dr. Coonrad and Harrington. Dr. Mori, in 1984, you designed the most unorthodox Mayo conservative hip prosthesis. I consider it a pioneering work in proving uh, metaphyseal fixation worked absent diaphyseal engagement. Uh, just incredible stuff. How did you get the idea for this? Uh, <clears throat> well, th we, this was the first metaphyseal fixed implant that I uh, know of and was pat patented in 1983, I think. I had a very productive couple of years. That's when the Coonrad Mori was designed and the the uh, metaphyseal fit uh, hip called the Mayo Conservative Hip. Um, and I, I can I can tell you that the exact times when we were thinking about this is I was looking at an X-ray and um, of the hip AP of the of the hip of the femur, and um, I was looking at the stress patterns and the trabecular patterns in the proximal femur. And I was uh, uh, interested in understanding how the stresses were being transmitted from the ball of the head 
the, the femoral head down into the metaphyseal region and then down into the shaft. And there were a number of investigators at the time looking at this. One of them was a person by the name of Rubicki. And he demonstrated that the loaded femur caused tremendous stresses in the uh, trochanteric region, which is one reason you get trochanteric fractures, of course. But then uh, it had kind of a quiet zone, and then the increased stresses further down the shaft. And then there was work that showed when you put in an implant, a stemmed implant, you had a biphasic stress distribution where it was extremely high around the calcar region. And then there was a quiet zone from, say, the lesser trochanter to wherever the tip ended. And then the stress kind of flowed out of the tip through the, through the cortex, which is one of the reasons um, uh, stems that are fixed uh, diaphyseal sometimes have thigh pain because of this uh, stress uh, phenomenon at the tip. Regardless of where the tip ends, there's going to be stress at the tip. So I thought, well, what happens if you take the tip and keep moving it proximal until the tip equals the metaphysis? So you get rid of the quiet zone, and then you get rid of the tip stress, and all you have is metaphyseal stress. So I thought about that, and I thought, well, that made sense to me. And then uh, I thought, well, how do you fix it? And then there's a different thoughts about putting a screw through and this, that, and the other, but that's not elegant, and it wasn't the direction we were going. We were going with uncemented devices at this time. So it occurred to me that uh, the best way to get a rigid fit of one structure inside the other was not to have them with two similar shapes. For example, if I want to get a four-inch outer diameter cylinder to fit into a four-inch inner diameter cylinder, it's kind of tricky because it has to do with where the tolerances are and uh, and nothing will keep it from spinning or rotating. So I thought it doesn't make sense to try to fit some, um, have a structure with morphologically the same as what you're trying to fix it to. But if you had dissimilar shapes, you should be able to get a rigid fixation without having too much of a depth of insertion. And then so it was a matter of modeling the neck as a um, as a cylinder and then modeling the proximal uh, femur at the metaphyseal region distally with the bow and then the uh, anaverted neck. And then uh, the uh, issue is to wedge. How can you wedge something down the neck and then have it and not be able to negotiate the anaverted neck. In other words, you can't negotiate and get down the canal. And the thing that really made me think about that was actually a Zimmer design of a hip replacement called the bias. You remember the bias. And I used to, I was one of the investigators for that at Mayo, and I taught the residents to put the bias in, you have to nibble off the back of the neck because you have to kind of roll it down the curved femur and the neck's in your way. So then I thought, wait a minute, time out. If the neck's in the way, why don't you leave the neck and you can wedge something down the neck and you don't have to go way down the shaft. So the experience with the bias of getting the stem down requiring you to neutralize the effect of the anaverted neck uh, and, and the concept of the stress being concentrated in two areas and trying to make the two areas one area uh, all uh, fed together to uh, create the concept of a fixed. And then after that, 
I thought, well, what's the most powerful system of um, getting rigid fixation? Well, one might argue it's a Morris taper, which I would agree with. A very elegant, simple design, uh, just uh, three degrees or four degrees, whatever the uh, ratios are, um, of taper provides tremendous fixation. So I said, well, what happens if you have a gross taper? It's a little bit like the Morse taper. You can get a ball to fit on a trunnion, and uh, it res- resists rotation like a madman, and as well as uh, 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 tension, of uh, pull uh, dissociation. Um, so we designed a wedged implant that uh, would fit down the canal. We used some three-dimensional, three uh, MRI-type modeling in those days, and uh, just fooled around with what seemed like a reasonable design because it it's tapered in three planes and the cross-sectional area is tapered wider posteriorly than anteriorly and that resists rotation and the fact that it the that it has the tail that aligns itself with the canal also helps resist rotation and then the wedge shape being narrower anterior and posterior resists um it's a little bit like a morris taper when you try to put it in a very stress so it re- resists various stress. So we then put it in some cadavers. We recognized it could cause big hoop stresses, and I don't want to get too detailed and all that, but it um, it just seemed like the logical thing in the, in the clinical imperative was that I was doing a lot of hip surgery and doing a lot of hip revision, and a lot of that was being done on young people who came loose, and they got tremendous osteolysis with the loose femoral uh, cemented stem, particularly if the cement fractured. So I thought, man, you gotta you gotta preserve the metaphysis, or you gotta preserve the diaphysis for a revision. You can't have the first primary operation destroying the femur if it comes loose or if it fails. So um, that that prompted us to say this really is an implant that should be put in a young person because it's conservative, doesn't remove as much bone. And um, that that was kind of uh, very quickly kind of the story of it. An endless source of amusement to me was taking around an X-ray of one of the Mayo hips and showing it to my young surgeons and telling them that case just presented itself in the ED and the patient heard a metallic clunk. And here we are. And they would always stare at it and think, oh, my gosh, the stem got bent in vivo. How does that even happen? That joke never got old to me. <laughs> and i tell you what else never got old to me was showing that implant. It was so innovative and quite a challenge in some ways because it did yes. not look like anything else that had ever been put on the market. And that just made the whole thing so, so exciting and fun. Well, thanks. Well, one of the thoughts is, and how can you have a hip replacement that doesn't look like a hip? And my, my argument to get people's attention is, the way you really want to design a hip replacement is you want an implant that doesn't look like what you're replacing. And, and that really means that the dissimilar shapes can get rigidly fixed. And the, and the, the wedge concept was designed to reduce inventory because if you have a wedge and you're trying to put it down a cylinder, uh, you can fit a, the same wedge in a lot of different cylinders, diameters. It's just that it goes down further or less far, but it still remains rigidly fixed regardless of the depth of insertion. So there was a number of other things I haven't gone into that um, were built into this uh, kind of concept. But you're right. It was just um, 
um, surgeons could not accept a design concept that didn't look like a proximal femur. And so um, yeah, some places adopted it very aggressively. Germany was one of them, one market I remember that bought into it and wrote papers on it. But um, it took, um, I think, another cycle that, uh, and, and a cycle where I think is when Zimmer acquired uh, a Swiss company that had a stemless Solzer. Yes, in in the uh, they had a design team looking at a stemless implant. They decided part of the arrangement for that um, acquisition would be to honor their research project, and then they shelved the. Uh, the Mayo conservative hips. That was kind of the end of it, I think. It's not every day that I get to ask somebody about their experience as a surgeon for a former president of the United States and the first lady. Uh, tell me about that experience and how did it all come about? Mrs. Bush was on our board of trustees and I um, was the chairman of the department from Texas. And so uh, when Mrs. Bush needed her uh, surgery, uh, which was a hit. Um, she she said her her story is, you know, if I'm on the board of trustees of an institution, I probably ought to use that institution for my health care uh, if they are competent. And it turns out they were competent, very competent. And um, then we actually became friends. Um, and uh, I ended up replacing um, four of her joints, both knees and both hips in both of the president's hips. And um, the president, though, followed uh, Mrs. Bush's lead. She had the first surgery and then the president. But um, one of the things that I felt very strongly about uh, in those days was that our uh, uncemented implants had not yet been developed to the extent that they are today, sophisticatedly uh, so, and weren't as uh, reliable. And we had done some studies at Mayo showing that if you're over the age of 70, actually, if you're over the age of 50, to be honest, but if you were over the age of 70, the likelihood of having a complication or a reoperation with the cemented hip was statistically less than an uncemented hip. And so since I was one of the authors on that paper and knew the data, we uh, cemented uh, all four of the Bush's hips, and uh, both his and both hers. And um, they, they, thank God, they did not come loose radiographically or clinically. And uh, none of them had another operation on any of those six joints, which I think defies all odds because I thought if there was ever going to be a problem in my career, it will absolutely be here. But uh, for some reason, uh, uh, I was spared. I've always been in awe of the professional golfer at the Masters who's walking that last hole and still has two more shots to drain before taking the cup. Uh, just what that stress level must look like. What was it like mentally preparing to operate on the President of the United States? Well, you think about it, um, but you think about it in advance. I, I, like I said, I play a lot of sports, actually, and uh, and I do believe in the game face, and I believe that there's mental preparation for tough contests. And so the day before or leading into these, you know, I had to kind of think through it, think, you know, have an idea of the sizing, have an idea of what the pathology is going to look like, how, you know, I'd run through the procedure virtually in my mind. But then the mental toughness part is, you say, as soon as the incision is made, 
all focus just goes on the wound and then you automatically do what you've done a hundred or a thousand times before. And so thank God that's what, uh, that's what I was fortunate enough to be able to do. Um, and that is just focus on what I was doing. And I, and I, and I told myself, do not think about who this is when you're doing it. This is a replacement you've done over a thousand times before. And so that's what it is. Now I, I will say one time, uh, I have my son in uh, as an assistant, maybe both for the president. But I also asked Dan Barry, uh, who at this time had become the chair of the department, because I thought when I leave Mayo, if they, if he needs anything or if she needs anything further, I wanted them to uh, be in the hands of somebody that that knew something about the procedure because they were there. And so I intentionally uh, I had Dan as uh, my first assistant and so he was in a position to do something if necessary, or at least was familiar with the case more than just peripherally. Uh, fortunately, that didn't, it wasn't needed. Let's talk about the Mayo Clinic, a name synonymous with top-tier surgical talent and expertise. You came on in 1978 and saw so much in the way of growth of that institution, culminating in you serving on the Board of Governors. Take us down memory lane there and what it's like to live in Minnesota just weather-wise compared to Texas. you got to be tough to pull that one off. <laughs> well, I, uh, well, I came here from Texas because, by the way, I'm in Rochester right now. We go back to Texas in a couple of weeks. But uh, I, we came to Rochester uh, for training, but we came back for our career because um, – a uh, number of reasons. Um, uh, I, I wanted a challenging practice, and uh, I wanted to have a chance to teach. I wanted to have a chance to do research, and and so this offered those. Uh, it was only up to me and my energy how much you know I could get out of it or put into it. And then, thank God, my wife was very uh, supportive. And even though it's very cold here, very different from Texas, uh, it's a it was a town of only about. 55,000 when we came back. Now it's over 100, but still a small a small city and an easy place, relatively easy place to rear children if there is such a thing as an easy place to rear children. And um, so we wanted to rear our children in a safe environment and in a nice community and that had the opportunities of, um, of a practice that were only limited by what you could invest in the practice. And so this seemed to meet all those uh, uh, requirements. And I was able to do research with some exceptionally fine people, Dr. Ahn and Dr. Chow. And uh, I had wonderful partners. I mentioned Dr. Barry, Dr. Cabanella would cover my cases when I was out of town uh, traveling or whatever. And I covered his cases when he was out of town. So we had these great relationships, wonderful residents that, were very energetic and eager to learn, and we could see them grow and develop. So it was very idyllic uh, from almost every perspective. I had a chance to write and publish, which I was interested in. In 1988, uh, I was named chairman, and uh, that came as a bit of a surprise. I was only 44, and um, that wasn't really my direction. I was really interested in the three things I talked about. I was uh, the second busiest surgeon in the department at the time and had uh, some research funded by NIH and was teaching uh, and writing. And I was doing everything I wanted to do. And this was kind of a distraction, but you do what you're asked to do. And so we we were fortunate to be able to uh, 
have 10 years in that position. And that was the years that we were able to attract some exceptionally wise and talented people uh, like uh, Dr. Llewellyn and Dr. Uh, Truesdale and others um, in, in the hip and knee world. And, um, and this helped the department to grow. And uh, then those individuals, of course, uh, further the, um, the reputation of the institution. Um, after Mayo has a time limit on their uh, chair uh, chair positions, it's two four year terms. Sometimes you can go longer. Um, and I had been in the the chair nine years, and when I was uh, uh, asked to come on the board, and that you can't be on the board and run a department at the same time. Mayo considers that a conflict of interest. So uh, I was uh, chair just at ten years when I went on the board, and uh, then the board has two four-year terms. So I did that for eight years. So I had uh, the administrative responsibility for about 18 years. But I was fortunate I had such good partners um, that I was able to continue with my clinical practice and my clinical research. I had to give up some of the basic research, sadly, but I was still able to do the kind of things that I came to Mayo to do, even if I was involved in those other activities. Over 440 peer-reviewed publications. Wow. Research has been such a key component of your career. Anything particular stand out to you as something you are particularly proud of? Well, there's a few pets that I have, I guess, that uh, we kind of touched on. Um, I think I was very, very lucky that my research, the three-dimensional motion of the elbow, the uh, project that I referenced earlier, I actually got accepted by JBJS, which is really unusual in those days and even now for a basic science-oriented paper. But I put a the clinical um, relationship of this kind of information can help us better design an elbow implant. And so uh, that that was uh, very, very important. And that was uh, work that I did as a resident. And it was published while I was still a resident. Um the other is I wrote up our experience with the uh, short stem male conservative hip, and uh, and that I think is is the first documented series of uh, uncemented metaphysically fixed uh, femoral components uh, in the literature, um, and uh, those are the two that come to mind uh, early in the career, and then um, I'd have to think uh, Dan. Uh, for his Sentinel paper, looked up the 20-year results of the uh, Charlie hip at Mayo, and uh, this was one that we we advised him to do, and uh, you know review the data and all. And um, one in the knee that I'm kind of proud of is that we looked up the, um, the clinical outcomes of posterior stabilized knees and posterior cruciate retaining knees. And actually, the data at Mayo over a long period of time favors posterior cruciate retaining. Not that that matters particularly because uh, I think the orthopedic community does what it wants to do and is variably influenced by data. But um, that those were um, papers that, you know, touched on the elbow, the hip, and the knee. And I kind of feel good about having something that may be of value in all those areas. Maybe the most uh, significant was um, an early paper on hip instability. We looked up 10,500 cases of uh, total hips, and 339 had uh, an unstable hip. And so one of our residents who was a 
an engineering major, analyzed these 339 hips, and his name is Wu, and that's one of the, that's one of the early, and I think it's still a somewhat definitive paper on um, the etiology of the uh, of the unstable hip. Speaking of unstable hip, I'd love to get your thoughts on the relationship between the pelvis and the spine, uh, obliquity, leg length discrepancies, uh, all vis-a-vis hip replacement. Well, that to me is kind of a graduate level topic. Uh, because it, because we really don't know that much scientifically about it, or maybe I should say I don't. I, and I have looked into it, um, but it's a very important, a very important concept to understand some subtle problems that you sometimes see in patients. One of the most common, in my uh, experience, is leg length inequality, and it ends up being an apparent leg length inequality because you can have a fixed pelvic obliquity. And that will tilt the pelvis, and it will make it seem as though one leg is longer than the other. And so it, it is important to understand the spine status and the, you might say, the rigidity of the spine and any uh, fixed deformity when you are designing your uh, uh, hip or planning uh, your hip replacement. Because if you do have a fixed deformity, you might, may want to make sure you avoid lengthening the hip that's already appears to be long or maybe even shortening a little bit the uh, the leg that appears to be long um the the is the issue about uh, leg length inequality that is that i think a lot about and i um, um uh, share with the patients is that it is a little bit of a trade-off with instability um and leg length and uh I, I always tried to make sure I had a good fit, of course, like everybody else. And I'd tell the patients that your leg might be a little bit long if we feel like we need to do that to make sure your hip is stable. And this has an added advantage of, of maybe being true, and I think it is to some extent. But uh, if their leg is a little bit different, they will have already been warned. It might be a little different. And uh, a reason for this is that, that we want to make sure it's stable. That may or may not be 100% true, but there is some correlation. But the, the fixed uh, obliquity is, uh, uh, or, or spinal deformities, particularly the rigid spinal deformities, which I guess by definition they are, um, uh, can uh, cause increased stresses on the hip, not only causing uh, leg length inequality or apparent leg length inequality, but if it's severe, it can also cause uh, instability when it wouldn't otherwise exist. You have been a consultant to the National Football League since the late 80s. That has to have been pretty awesome. Uh, With the enormous financial pressures within professional sports, tell me what that experience has been like from the medical side. That's that's an interesting aspect of our society because uh, over the the last few decades, there's no surprise the uh, value of um, athletic talent in the professional level. and. there's also no uh, surprise that um, the athletes don't necessarily feel as though the team has their best interest in mind. So as part of their uh, contracts, the players union um, makes sure that all players, I assume this is all players, I guess I don't know this with complete certainty, but um, they have a contract that gives them the right for outside opinion because professional players, even if they, know the doctor and trust the doctor and all they all they they innately or instinctively can't quite trust the 
the team doctor that's being paid for by the team to be acting in the player's best interest if it's at, at odds with the team's best interest or the owner's best interest. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong or even true, but that's certainly a perception. And so um, they do have in their contract a right to get a second opinion. And the second opinion has to be disinterested third parties or, or typically is a disinterested third party. Um, I think probably Jimmy Andrews is, is the most widely used uh, second opinion person uh, in the world. Um, but I was on that list and I did see some of the Vikings. I don't see professionals anymore, but it would be typically the Vikings. I think I saw a Kansas City chief once and maybe a, a 49ers once, but a person would have a right to uh, a second opinion. And depending upon what the problem was, they, it, it might come to me. You've also served as a consultant for the FDA. Tell me about your experience working on the government side of medicine, so to speak. I always kind of considered myself working on the side of medicine. I don't want to say against the FDA, but maybe trying to enlighten the FDA. Uh, I've worked with the government when I was at NASA, and I worked for the government when I went to the Air Force. And then working with the FDA was my third uh, working with the government and my experiences were, and NASA was actually very good, but I understood the bureaucracy. In the Air Force, it was very good, but I understood the bureaucracy. The FDA was okay, and I understood the bureaucracy. Um, the, this is a government agency and has to follow the government rules and regulations, which interferes with its function to, to some extent, in my opinion. Um, but I was on the device panel, and... Um, I believe I chaired the device panel for several years. And uh, this was important because if there was a, a new device that's coming out, uh, you, there had to be an, a ruling on its safety and efficacy and whether or not it should be allowed to be marketed. And some of these determinations were easier than others. Uh, I'll tell you one story about this that I that I kind of chuckle at, and I think it's probably – the best thing I did at the FDA, by the way, I'm not, I'm not an active consultant anymore. I, I haven't been for over 10 years, but, uh, um, everybody knows about the pedicle screw and, um, the pedicle screw, uh, had kind of a rough origin because it came out and, uh, people started using it to stabilize spine instrumentation, uh, procedures or stability procedures. And it had not been approved as a pedicle screw. It had been approved, I think, maybe to put in a plate or some other application, but not as a pedicle screw. But once the surgeon found that it could be put in safely and it was very effectively, within a matter of a year or two, the pedicle screw had just kind of changed the practice. The problem was it wasn't FDA approved. So the way people were stabilizing spines was basically kind of against the law. It was it was a, uh, a surgeon can use their own judgment on how to use an instrument, but it's called off-label. And so the FDA actually came to me personally and asked if I'd put together a panel to review this. And then the sad thing, and I don't know if this is something we can even talk about, but we were given a direction that they did not want us to render an opinion of whether or not this should be marketed. Just listen to the data and then summarize the data. Um, there, this was being confused by there was a number of class lawsuits against doctors and 
manufacturers that um, were uh, taking place. And there was tremendous pressure from the uh, attorneys to um, have this ruled that it was an inappropriate use. And so we were given a direction not to weigh in on either of that, just listen to the data. <laughs> so we got together. We had dinner that night, the panel, and we discussed it. And I said, you know, the, this panel is very knowledgeable. We'll never be in a better position ever to render a judgment on whether or not this is safe and efficacious and appropriate to manage. But we've been given instructions that they're not interested in that opinion. In my judgment, it's our it's it's our right to give whatever opinion we want. So I think that we should listen to the data and then we should render a judgment on that. And the panel agreed. Uh, there were no FDA people in the room at that time. Uh, and so the next day, we took a whole day of testimony and it was all done. We deliberated. And um, we came out and said we thought there was evidence that the, the, the pedicle screw should be allowed to be marketed as a pedicle screw. And that that was uh, – the, the retaliation for that was that I – two investigators or two FDA people came to Mayo and wanted to look at all of my records that I had saved from all that uh, foolishness. Uh, because they were looking to sue me. And uh, fortunately, fortunately, I had thrown everything out. And I'd never done a pedicle screw. I'm really not interested in doing a pedicle screw. So I had no reason to keep any of that. And they didn't believe me. Uh, I'm sure they didn't believe me. They didn't say that, but maybe they, the way they asked the question, it sounded like it. But I was really protected because nobody told me to throw the stuff out. I was just clearing out my desk, and I thought, well, this is behind me. I don't need this anymore, and so I chunked it, and that saved me because they didn't come back. I said, I don't have a scrap of data, and I and I told them, I says, you guys have to understand, I don't particularly care for spine surgery. It's not something that I've wanted to do. I've never uh, had a pedicle screw held in my hand before, which was true. I said, so you're talking to a disinterested third party here. All we did is look at the data and rendered an opinion, and that was the end of that. So that's that's the most um, memorable experience I had with the FTA. There were some good ones, but that wasn't good. But I feel good about it because justice was served. Isn't it incredible in hindsight to see the impact of that decision? I mean, pedicle screw surgery now is ubiquitous in the spine world. Yeah, across the world. You, you can't do spine surgery unless you know how to do that. And, and that was obvious to me and to my panel. And so we would be a dereliction of, of our responsibility if we didn't render an opinion. Because we knew that the FDA had an agenda, and we knew that the agenda was being pushed by the trial lawyers or the, or the product liability lawyers. And that was just not right. And Device Nation listeners, that concludes part one of our interview with Dr. Morey. As I look through his CV some more, I realize the only way my CV could match his, page for page, uh, it would have to involve a lot of pictures, a lot of Sudoku puzzles, and some industry ads. Just an amazing body of work. I can't tell you how many times in that interview 
I, I sat back and just went, wow, I can't believe that I'm getting to hear this. And just being so excited that my audience was going to get to hear this. Just an amazing storied career and a true gentleman in every sense of the word. So I look forward to having you all back to hear the conclusion of this conversation. And I hope you all have an awesome day. 